the idea. It's like it's, it's super Japanese, this idea that beauty will never, beauty is impermanent. Everything is impermanent, right? And that's where the beauty of it comes from. Yeah, it was just that feeling. I wanted to write a story that captured this sense of like wanting to have something, wanting to hold it, you know, and treasure it forever. And, and, and you just can never hang on to it. But then there's beauty in that as well. Evanescence. June made candy. At least, that's what it looked like. What June really made was magic. I would sit with him in his shop in the early mornings before school and watch him gather up with his fingers a pinch of candy, still warm and pliable from the pot that he kept heated over the coals, and affix it to a slender bamboo stick where it would spring to life and clarity under his deft touch. He would coax and clip it into the shape of a kitten its tiny paw batting at an invisible ball of yarn, or a stag with magnificent antlers, or perhaps a dolphin leaping from the sea. By the time he had finished, the candy was as clear and brittle as glass. Then he would add color, white and coal black for the kitten, warm brown for the stag, pearly blue and gray for the dolphin. Occasionally, especially on cold days, the candy would harden before he had quite finished the nose of the horse he was making or the neck of a crane would snap between his fingers. June would apologize to the misshapen creature and return it gently to the sludge from whence it had come. He worked as if nothing existed outside of himself and the animal at his fingertips, so absorbed was he in the act of creation. But when he was finished, he would turn to me and smile. How could I not fall in love with him? June's animals were so exquisite that no one ever wanted to eat them. They seemed better fit to be displayed on a shelf or wrapped carefully in tissue paper and stored in a little box of treasures. But he insisted that we eat them. He would not allow customers to buy one unless they promised to eat what they had purchased. They want to be admired, of course, he would say, but you can't admire them forever. They're meant to be eaten. If a customer returned, praising the candy's sweetness and the way it had melted in their mouths, June would know that they had broken their promise and would refuse to sell them another piece. If you had actually eaten the candy, it would brought you a dream at night. Eat a golden carp, and you would see languid, fishy dreams of swimming in a clear, sandy pond, the only sound, the pebbles shifting with the waves. Choose a swallow, and you would dream of swift and brilliant flight in a sparkling blue sky. A fox give you woodsy dreams of dappled green sunlight and the scent of earth. Eventually, I began helping at the shop as a countergirl. June let me take home one piece of candy every day as payment. It was from my post at the counter that I saw, first saw Lila when she wafted into the shop one cold, wet afternoon. She had wide gray eyes and deep red lipstick. Her hair, which she had twisted into a neat chignon at the nape of her slender neck, was like black ink, and it gleamed under the shop lights. Her skin reminded me of moonlight. <clears throat> The depth and sharpness of her beauty took my breath away, and I heard June gasp behind me as well. I felt suddenly inadequate, sitting on my stool with my snub nose and freckles. Only moments before, my vintage bomber jacket and scuffed Doc Martens had felt sophisticated and vaguely punk rock. Now, next to her high heels and her slim, dove-gray suit, they were a beacon of my childishness. June nodded at me, 
Get up and do your job. Reluctantly, I stood and said, Hello, miss. How may I help you? Lila smiled, closed mouth. Oh, I don't need anything. I only stepped in because of the rain. She nodded at the plate glass window, in which I could see nothing but our own reflections. But I could hear the rain pelting the glass. It started coming down so hard, and I don't have an umbrella. I'll just wait here until it stops, if you don't mind. I shrugged and returned to my seat next to June. I knew I had been rude, and I didn't care. He glared at me. Lila wandered around the shop, her heels clicking slowly as she crisscrossed the floor, exclaiming over June's work. Oh, but these are enchanting, she cried. These are just too perfect. I must have one. She chose a magnificent dragon with claws and horns and long trailing whiskers. I extracted from her the usual promise to eat the candy, telling her, as I did every new customer, that, that we would know the next time she came to the shop whether she had kept her promise and that we wouldn't sell her another one if she hadn't. Lila smiled indulgently and agreed. As she reached into her handbag, June stood up. Wait, he said, let me handle this. What? I wrinkled my nose. Lila had several bills in her hand, and perhaps she assumed that June meant for her to pay him rather than me. She held the money out to him, and he gently waved it away, motioning for her to give him the dragon. She frowned and said, but that's ridiculous. You can't tell me not to buy it. In response, June turned and plucked his latest creation from the stand where it sat, candy paint almost dry. It was a crane with a moon-white body, a long, graceful neck, and a deep red crest, and individual gray and ink-black feathers on the edges of its outspread wings. He offered it to her. Take this instead. Oh, but this, this is exquisite, she breathed, and she looked up. Their eyes met, and I could see immediately that June was smitten, that what he had given her was much more than just a prettier piece of candy. A glance at Lila confirmed to me that she could see it too. She lowered her lashes demurely and murmured, Thank you. That'll be twenty dollars, I said. My voice felt as scratchy and sharp as sand in my throat. No, said June. I stared at him. He cleared his throat. The crane is a gift. Oh, I couldn't, protested Lila, but in fact she could, and she did. She cast an openly flirtatious glance over her shoulder as she left the shop, and I seethed as June smiled back. Lila came back to the shop the next day, effusive and trailing a coterie of equally well-dressed, equally beautiful friends. She had dreamed the most magical dreams. June was a true artist. She wanted another, and this time she insisted on paying. June allowed all of Lila's friends to purchase their pieces, but she herself left the shop once again without paying. Over the next few weeks, Lila became a regular customer, if you can call someone who never buys anything a customer. June's creations became even more lovely, even more sweetly delicious, and according to the customers, the dreams, even those of the lumbering bear and the undulating octopus candies, became suffused with a sort of giddy joy. The shop did brisk business, so I couldn't complain. But inwardly, I despaired. June began closing the shop early when Lila came, and the two of them would disappear into the dusk, leaving me to sweep the floors and wipe the counters and nurse my grudge alone. Twice I followed them after they left the shop. One time they got into the back seat of the car that she'd summoned to fetch her, and I lost them immediately. Another time they walked past the edge of town and out along the fields. 
I managed to trail behind them unseen. They paused, and I froze behind a clump of bushes. The night was cold and crisp and clear, and the moon shone so brightly that when Lila lifted her face to gaze at it and June gazed down at her, I could see the adoration in his eyes. She turned to him and smiled her closed-mouthed smile, and they kissed there, bathed in moonlight. I ran home and cried. I kept my candy for that day, a seal, wrapped in a sheet of cellophane. I wanted no part of June's treacherous infatuation with Lila in my dreams that night. I wanted only my heartache. I stopped accepting June's candy after that, and when he asked what was wrong, I blamed a bad tooth. The heat and humidity were oppressive the last day that Lila came to the shop, but June was ebullient. He was finishing a masterpiece. It was a tree, not much taller than his index finger, with an effusion of delicate branches, to which were attached hundreds of pale pink cherry blossoms. In the center of the foliage was a life-sized golden ring, still made of sugar, but gleaming with real gold paint. When Lila arrived at closing time, June had just set the tree in a nest of candy floss so that it looked as if it were blooming in a bank of purest snow. Usually, the two of them would have walked out together and left me to close the shop, but June was worried that the humidity might damage the tree, and he shooed me out so that he could be alone with his beloved. Unable to tear myself away from the source of my pain, I lingered across the street and watched, agonized, through the shop window as the two of them kissed. June presented the candy tree, the sweetness of a future with Lila shining in his eyes. Lila clasped her hands, delighted, and I tried to swallow the bitter lump in my throat. But as she reached out to accept her gift and to admire June's artistry, her mouth made an O oh, and the delight in her face melted. I saw her inhale, saw concern flicker across June's hopeful expression. Lila shook her head, still smiling, and pushed the tree back toward June, and I saw her mouth form the words, I'm sorry, and I never meant. June blinked, stunned. I'm sorry, Lila said again. I can't. But I love you, said June silently, and Lila smiled and shook her head a third time, and I wanted to tear my hair out, so furious was I at both of them, her for hurting him and him for being hurt. She said something I couldn't make out, smiled that red smile, and leaned over to kiss his cheek. Don't go, he said. Goodbye, she said. He thrust the tree into her hands, and though she continued to shake her head, she took it with her out the door. Cast in shadow as she was, with the shop light shining behind her, I couldn't tell if she was sad or satisfied, but her silhouette was as poised and elegant as always as she waited for her car. June was just visible behind her, partially hidden by her shoulder, already receding into the background of her life. Perhaps that was where he had always been. The rain began to fall in hard, angry drops, and I wondered if Lila would go back into the shop to stay dry, but moments later her car rolled up and she disappeared into it. She never returned. I saw something glinting on the sidewalk in the light of the shop. By the time I reached it, I could see that the cherry tree had snapped off the snowbank and that the branches had shattered on the side where they'd hit the concrete sidewalk. The rain was making quick work of it, washing away the color, dissolving the shards that had broken off. Determined to spare June from seeing this final indignity, I gingerly picked up what remained and was about to run home with it when I felt his hand on my shoulder. Come inside, he said. Bring the tree. I followed him through the door. 
The dye was running off of the tree in rivulets by now and collecting in sticky red and brown droplets on my hand. Only the gold held fast. Jun stoked the dying embers of the cooking fire until the coals glowed orange. He took the tree from me and tossed it in. Together, we watched it melt. The last of the cherry blossoms dropped off first. The branches wilted and curled, followed by the trunk. The warm, golden scent of molten sugar turned dark and bitter as it blackened and burned, bubbled and hissed. For weeks afterwards, customers reported that Jun's candy animals tasted burnt and salty. People complained that the dreams were infused with melancholy. Eagles flew through murky skies and rabbits nibbled at dying wheat leaves in the chill of autumn. Business dropped. Jun became less and less productive. Some days he didn't make anything at all. I understand you, I yearned to say to him. I love you. Forget Lila. Love me. Instead, I tried to fill in. My attempts were lumpy and lopsided with clumsy feet and misshapen heads, more curiosities than creatures. I sold them at a discount. Their dreams were peculiar and customers would return to the shop completely mystified by what they had seen. I thought I bought a lion, but I swam in the depths of the ocean. I didn't dream of animals at all, but of stars. Over time, my creature's forms improved, but the dreams never quite settled down. Sparrows soared on updraft made of rose-colored light, and sea otters gambled in the starlit pools of desert oases. I added new creatures, lions with dolphin tails, rabbits with butterfly wings. I showed them to June one day. I love you, I stammered, the words spilling over, powered by months of longing. Please let me make you happy again. Jun looked at me with great tenderness and smiled for the first time in weeks. Without a word, he turned to the candy dough and began carving and snipping. A tree took shape beneath his fingers, not the fickle cherry tree whose blossoms fade and vanish and leave nothing behind, but a peach tree laden with fruit. Jun placed it in my hands and sent me home. That night, I dreamed of love, of heartbreak, of sorrow and joy. I dreamed of seasons passing one into the next. I dreamed of a blizzard of cherry blossom petals and of ripe peaches, the fruit of youth and life. I woke up weeping. The following morning, the shop was empty, but for the sugar, the candy pot, and a set of keys. I walked to the grassy fields beyond the town. The clouds rushed like smoke across the sky, turning in thick gray curls and tumbling off in fluid wisps that vanished and reappeared, vanished and reappeared, always moving, moving, swiftly, silently, out to the edge of the plains and beyond. Okay, Misa, thank you for reading that story. Um, can I ask uh, what inspired you to write Hanging Gardens? Um, yeah, so uh, I was casting about for ideas because we were supposed to be inspired by this little um gif gif i anyway <laughs> and uh uh-huh. i couldn't all i could yeah i was just really inspired by that mood but i uh, couldn't think of anything and um after a lot of casting about i finally just went with this other story that um was really inspired by um a video i saw of this young man in tokyo who had a candy shop and um he's one of two stores in tokyo where they he 
um, sells candy that he shapes into these beautiful animals and he paints them. And it's this sort of long, almost lost tradition. Um, and I was just so captivated by the candy and the art and like, and the man himself, um, that, yeah, that, that video and that image had been kind of rattling around in my brain for several months. And I decided to just hook that into the original prompt. Oh, wow. Um, and what did the gift look like? Oh, oh, so sorry. Um, so the gift was this, uh, it's a picture of a meadow and these like gray, it's like a time-lapse photography um, little video of these roiling gray storm clouds sort of like, you know, um, streaming across down to the horizon. And uh, yeah, ex like really such a such a mood <laughs> and um so I want yeah I sort of I slid the story of this guy who makes the candy into this gray um kind of melancholy mood that the that the gift created uh do you do you think with your writing you're you start with character first or was this a unique um situation for you oh uh, yeah I definitely start with a character um yeah characters and situations and feelings and um and then I go from there and uh yeah I often have trouble uh coming up with the plot once I've have a once I have an interesting person but um yeah in this this in this case it kind of wrote itself so it was sort of magical for me it, yeah I, I don't usually have that experience yeah that's interesting so do you feel when it comes to developing a plot like you sit down with an outline or you just start writing and kind of see where it takes you and then if you get stuck kind of step away for a bit and then come mm -hmm. back I typically have yeah I'm definitely a planner I um I, yeah, I'm kind of a control freak I've discovered over the past few years, and it really uh, unnerves me to start writing without a sense of where I'm going. Um, and I'm thinking about this story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, most of the stuff I write are novels, so I feel like I definitely need a direction to go in. The website that I was writing for focused mostly on young adult protagonists and young adult stories. So I wanted to have, I knew I wanted to have a girl, a teenage girl. It just made sense to me to have her be hopelessly in love with this man who would never return her feelings. Um, because to me, the man who, you know, the guy, Jun, who makes the candy was just sort of this, yeah, like this, I don't know, like a romantic ideal, right? And someone who would never be in, well, I guess he felt, sorry, well, let's start over. <laughs> I, <laughs> um, yeah, the, the feeling that the sky, those stormy clouds and that endless sort of, you know, like landscape out to, out to, out to the horizon um, made me feel like I wanted to write a story about something um, that was out of reach. Yeah. And then when I put this girl in the same shop as the man who made the candy, it, that's what it was to me. Like this, this man is something she wishes she could have a relationship, someone she wishes she could have a relationship with and, and she can't. Um, and the candy too is sort of like this ideal and you, you know, you try to capture this feeling and it never stays with you. So. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely found it interesting that, um, he always like insisted on the candy being consumed as opposed to like, you know, um, kept and uh, just like looked upon, but not, you know, for consumed basically was what he wanted. Um, yeah. So is that, did that kind of like tie into um, 
I don't know, like the metaphor for her towards him or. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was the, the idea. It's like, it's, it's super Japanese, this idea that beauty will never, beauty is impermanent. Everything is impermanent. Right. And that's where the beauty of it comes from. Yeah. It was just that feeling. I wanted to write a story that captured this sense of like wanting to have something, wanting to hold it, you know, and treasure it forever. And then, and you just can never hang on to it but then there's beauty in that as well right yeah yeah and I liked that when the candy did get consumed they'd have these like wild dreams and it was like so magical what like inspired you to like bring this magic into your story uh that's a good (laughs) good question I I think it was I don't even know I mean I don't typically write stories with magic in them or any you know um I love reading magical realism and so I think this was for me um, it was just a chance for me to play with that because I love reading it and I've never written it. I had never written oh, it. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Because I, I mean, one of my favorite parts is when she starts making candy herself and everyone's dreams are a little off. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, it was like this apprenticeship, you know, that I'm like, I don't know, as a reader, I believed like, yeah. <laughs> one day she'll get it, <laughs> perhaps. Yeah, um, I don't, I think so. Maybe. Yeah, and then and then I'm curious with the woman that ends up like entering the shop and having an affair with the man. Um, do you like? Do you kind of see her as like a magical uh, entity, or uh, like I don't know? There's like I think just because with the dreams and everything, it made me think that like perhaps she was like not of this earth either. Yeah, I um feel like yeah I deliberately made it unclear you know like where she came from and who she really was and where she disappeared to I yeah I hadn't thought about it a lot I but I definitely felt like I wanted to make her at least not of the world where this girl lives if that makes any sense right yeah yeah definitely like it felt like either like yeah, otherworldly or just like just like a different class, like, you know, like a little like just out of touch with um, the shop in the shop's world. Um, and was that perhaps a choice for since the man was like unobtainable for the girl, then like this other woman comes in that's like ultimately not obtainable for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then also I'm curious, like uh, when you started writing, did you... S- want to do a uh, young adult fiction or is that something you kind of just found that you uh, were just kind of had a knack for and then kind of just dived more um, into it? Yeah, for me, it was, uh, I, I s- decided to try to write a book like about four, four years ago, maybe five years ago. And um, I wasn't sure where to start and I was doing, you know, research for something else um, that was pretty heavy and pretty involved and very kind of academic. And, um, just to give myself a break emotionally, uh, I went to the young adult section and just randomly picked out a book and it was a young adult contemporary novel. And, um, yeah, I don't know, something about the voice kind of struck me and I thought, oh, like, oh, this is something I know how to do. And I don't know where, that confidence came from, <laughs> frankly, but I, it, it just, yeah, it struck me somehow. And I knew that this was something I wanted to try. Um, I used to teach high school English. So that's 
I'm sure that's a large part of it, but I felt like this was a voice that yeah, I knew. Yeah, that just like yeah. that age and like all of that you're going through when you're developing, like it just like your work, um, I feel like does a great job at like capturing, um, yeah, those like a lot of firsts, like uh, with Hanging Gardens, it's like, you know, her first like unrequited love or, you know, first time just like obsessing over, you know, an older man, I thought like really just captures those emotions so well I know you so you taught high school and then you became a writer like later on in life how was that for you to kind of switch gears into uh writing yeah um I you know there is this cliche that every English teacher is a is a secretly dreams of being a novelist and um so that I think that was partly me I always I've always loved to write uh, but I never had time and I never felt like I had anything to say. Yeah, I decided to try writing um, when my youngest son went back to school full time when he was in first grade. Um, it was just one of those like, all right, I'm just going to give it a shot for one year, sort of like pursue my secret dream. Um, and uh, yeah, and I, I got really lucky in that it worked out for me. And so that, sh yeah. Um, so the shift is an interesting. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was gonna say was when you gave yourself that year, did you like quit your job and then just like focus on writing? Or were you still like trying to juggle things? But you're like, at least, you know, I, I have a kid in school now that I don't have to like, dedicate so much time to. Yeah, no, no, no. So I was Oh, yeah, I didn't mention that I was I was already at home. So staying at home being yeah I was doing a lot of you know like volunteer work and this and that and um uh yeah so I still had so it was I was just gonna suddenly have like a huge open chunk of time um where I wasn't taking care of somebody all day long <laughs> and um when I when I had kids and I became you know a stay-at-home parent I really missed having a different identity, like having an identity outside of being a parent. Yeah. So that was just me saying, all right, I, I'd like to go back to, you know, you know, I'd be happy to go back to teaching, but since I'm already home, like, I'll just try this other way to be someone who's not, you know, who's, who's, who has a life outside of being a parent. Um, and, um, yeah. Did you find when you like then had the time and sat down to write, you like were just ready to write or do you feel like it took a while to kind of transition into becoming a writer? Yeah. I, I spend about two to three hours a day um, on, on my writing typically, unless I'm, you know, under like a deadline crunch or, or something like that. Not what I meant. Walking all the way across the gym toward Mari after weeks of silence is torture. But I make myself do it because I need her back in my life. And I need to tell her now, in person, before I lose my nerve. I've tried texting her, obviously, but she's blocked me on everything. Mari's dancing with Rosie, Seema, Jace, and Jace's idiot friends. The girls are all decent dancers, but the boys... I mean, what is it with boys and dancing anyway? Some of them are okay, but a lot of them just sort of jab their hips from side to side like giant windshield wipers. Jace is bouncing around in his stupid sag pants and his stupid sideways snapback like he's some kind of hip-hop hype beast icon and not a suburban white wannabe. 
Mari, of course, is doing her own thing. That spacey, arm-wavy, head-naughty hippie dance she always does, whether the DJ plays ASAP Rocky, Taylor Swift, or BTS. It's completely derpy and also completely adorable. She has to listen to me. She has to come back to me. I push through the dancers and the human windshield wipers and Rosie shoots a look my way that practically freezes my soul. But I keep going because I am a woman on a mission. Then I'm standing in front of Mari and she's looking at me like, what do you want? I have to tell you something, I say. She takes a beat longer to think about this than I would have thought was absolutely necessary. But then she says, um, okay. Which is when Jace blows in on a gust of cologne and drapes his arm over her shoulders. Ugh, why? Hey, Yoon, he says. I hate it when people who hardly know me shorten my name like we're friends or something. But Jace is probably too clueless to realize that we aren't friends and I hate him. Or possibly he's just being a jerk. Hey, Jace, I say. Be nice, Yuna. Be nice. Hey, babe, he says to Mari next. Old Mari would have rolled her eyes because who says hey, babe? But new Mari sweetly hey, babes him back. And it's a major, major, major battle for me not to roll my eyes hard enough for the two of us, grab her hand and walk away. Hey, Yoon, says Jace again. We're going to slide to Seema's later for a party. It's going to want to come. It's going to be lit. And he mimes smoking a joint, which is the biggest bunch of BS ever, because everyone knows that Seema's parents would never allow her to have a party, let alone a party with weed. So I say, no, you're not. Nah, for real, says Hip Hop McSlangy Pants. No caps. I say, I think it's no cap, actually. Even I know that. He's kidding, says Mari, her voice clipped and cold. Obviously. I know, I lie. So am I. It's called being ironic. I hear my tone matching hers. This is so not what I had planned. It's all Jace's fault because she was ready to listen before he came bounding over like some stupid slobbery cartoon dog and ruined everything. I take a calming breath. Jace, can I talk to Mari alone, please? Jace and Mari exchange one of those secret boyfriend-girlfriend looks. And he shrugs and says, Sure, later, Yoon, and bounds off, hitching up his ridiculous fake gangsta pants as he goes. What a man, I say. I can't help it. What do you want, Yuna? says Mari. Her expression is flat, which unnerves me, but my moment is finally here. Heart pounding, I seize it. I think we should get back together. What? I mean, well, okay, like, Jace? Really? Why are you wasting your time with him? She stares, eyes wide. Are you kidding me right now? You came here to, t to tell me to break up with my boyfriend? No, I just, I, I mean, are you jealous? Oh my god. Jealous? Of that clown? Are you kidding me? Her eyes widen even more, and I imme immediately regret what, I've regret what I've said. But this entire encounter has gone screaming off the rails, so I guess I may as well commit and finish my thought. I mean, I know I screwed up, but come on, Jace Aberdeen? He's like a literal meme, Marty. Have some pride, at least. That's not even what I mean. What I mean is, I need you. I miss you. 
I messed up and now you're dating this idiot instead of me and I don't know what to do. What I mean is, I'll change, I'll do anything, just please take me back. Thanks, Yuna, I really appreciate how much you care, Mari deadpans, and I panic. Mari, I'm sorry, that's not what I... Rosie appears at Mari's side and says in a voice that's barely this side of a snarl, Just leave, Yuna. She's moved on. That knocks the breath out of me. Reeling, I do what I always do when I'm hurt. Pretend I don't care. I shape my mouth into a smile and say, Oh, right, sorry to intrude. Have fun getting lit. I turn and make the long, lonely trek back across the gym. I walk fast, but not too fast. Like I don't even care. Like I have better things to do than to hang with these losers. I don't turn around, not even once. At the door, I sneak a peek over my shoulder to see what kind of impression my dignified exit has made. But they're already dancing again, as if they've forgotten all about me. Is there like, um, is there like a website where people can find your work, or do you recommend just going to Amazon? And do you, would you like to plug your current published work? Oh yeah, um, sure. Yeah, my so my website is um, misasugiura dot com. So it's just my name dot com and um my latest novel is called this time will be different and uh it's a young adult contemporary novel from harper teen so which you you know you can get it on amazon uh there's a link on my website as well and um yeah it's it's um it's been nominated for a couple of best of 2019 lists so i'm really excited for it and uh i hope i hope people read it (laughs) Yay. Awesome. Thank you so much, Misa. Yeah, thank you. Stories But Shorter is produced by Jeremy Schmidt and hosted by me, Cassie Jerkins. Listeners of Stories But Shorter. Are you ready for a promo? Let's do yoga. Let's get fit. Hi, I'm Nick. And I'm Muriel. And we're the hosts of Hella Hella in Your Your 30s. A podcast about a cool couple trying to do adult stuff. So each week we invite you to join us as we try to learn things we should probably already know. Like, how does a stock market work? Can we install that bidet? Why are all of our houseplants dying? This is a podcast for people of all ages because remember... Age ain't nothing but a number. But being hella in your 30s is a state of mind. So tomorrow's a new day. Let's order pizza. Campfire.